When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business. Greetings of the day, my fellow listeners, and welcome to another edition of Building Better Businesses. My name is Steve Eschbach. I'm a trans world business advisor owner here in Chicagoland. I am one of seven owners. Uh, but nationally or globally, I should say, I'm one of about 250 trans world owners. And uh, we pretty much assist business owners confidently sell their businesses and match them with qualified buyers. We also work with business owners uh, if they're in the uh, uh, expansion mode or they want to do some strategic acquisitions. We can also assist them find targets that will achieve their goals. Uh, we also do franchise sales, so executives or anyone for that matter looking to buy a business and get into that entrepreneurial world with a franchise model already in place, we can assist you in that regard. And last but not least, we also do franchise development. So if you're a business owner and you're looking to expand via the franchise model, we have a sister company that will put everything together from marketing to documentation to franchise discovery days and the like to have you be able to expand via the franchise model. So I'm delighted today to have a uh, fellow colleague of mine from Florida. I'm from Chicagoland. Mike Shea is a uh, an entrepreneur business owner in the Florida area. He's been a Transworld business advisor for many, many years. We have another commonality. Our colleges are on the East Coast. We're Big East alums. Uh, he's from Providence. I am from uh, University of Connecticut. We will keep all that conversation for another time because we for can season. butt heads. Go ahead. For season, for basketball season. Absolutely. But what I'd like to be able to do is talk to, to Mike. He's been doing this for over 16 years, and I want to talk to him about his background, too. So first of all, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to join me today. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great. So tell me a little bit about where you are today. You are a Transworld business advisor. You're an owner of an office. Is that correct? No. So I'm I'm one of the shareholders in the Florida, you know, conglomerate. I'm one of Andy's agents, you know, the CEO, but you know, Andy's business is so big. And that's a whole story. You could talk to him about how he, you know, brought in what I call the 12 apostles to kind of, <laughs> you know, buy back the private equity money and then, you know, create liquidity to scale the company. So that that's a story in and of itself. But I'm one of the shareholders of the firm down here. But you know, from a legal standpoint, I I operate just like an agent working under Cagnetta. I was in Orlando for you know, 15 and a half years and then moved 45 minutes west into uh, a little town called Lakeland, which is 
in between Tampa and Orlando. My wife's an executive at a hospital here. So just, you know, I actually twofold, you know, needed to get some quality of life for her because the commute was killing her. But also I, I saw a direction in the market that I think, you know, physically uh, that part of the state's going to grow with all the growth that's happening in Florida. And it was an opportunity to test some of the theory of, uh, that I espouse on my soapbox from time to time. So, yeah. so far it's working. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned that many of the business owners here in Illinois, the reason why they're selling is they want to move to Florida. But that again, is a story in and of itself. Before we get into where you are today, Mike, let's talk a little bit about your background because your background is very, very interesting. You have a military background. You had a desire earlier on to become a teacher. You have, a, I think, your degrees in history. How is your upbringing in terms of family influence, like mom and dad and any other family members when you were a small child, uh, how did that influence where you are today? So I'm one of five boys, you know, a prototypical Irish Catholic family. Uh, my father was the son of an immigrant, you know, Irish Catholics in the Bronx. My grandmother wasn't even a U.S. citizen. My, fa- my father's family had five boys. My uncle had four boys. It's kind of the way we do it. If you go and look at my father's family, you know, two became doctors, one became a, you know, the equivalent of a Catholic male nun, what they're called brothers. Uh, One was an engineer, and then uh, one was joined the Navy at 16 and became a photographer for Nixon. That's an interesting story. But, you know, the immigrant family coming from Ireland in the 19, you know, the early 1900s, you know, leaving the, the depression that was Ireland, and then, you know, living in, you know, what you call the ghetto, but, you know, the Catholics kind of congregate around the parish, they go to the Catholic school, they go to the Catholic high school. And then my father became a physician by luck, he was going to be a teacher. And uh, somebody sent in an application to med school back in the old country, without him knowing it. And fortuitously, he got accepted to a med school in Ireland, went back, and then came back and uh, practice medicine and then moved us around. Back then, doctors were paid by the piece. They were entrepreneurs. They, you know, my dad liked to tell me that, you know, he was living in the basement with a picnic table for a chair and the garbage man made more money than he did. Doing pat- He was an anesthesiologist, so the family business was passing gas. Um, <laughs> and uh, moved us to the Jersey Shore, you know, put us through Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, and then, you know, obviously a Catholic college. And, uh, you know, he was born in the depression. So that, that depression mindset permeated the household. He knew what poverty was. Um, so the value of a dollar was drilled in and generate, you know, I appreciate that now, but generationally he understood. And, you know, we would shop at flea markets. We would go dumpster diving for, this is the town physician uh, doing things like this. And, uh, but it was born out of an experience and, you know, he was able to retire pretty darn early because he was pretty frugal and smart with his money. And there's, you know, but he he sent his children off to school. You know, I didn't gravitate towards the sciences as the as the fourth of five. I got to watch the mistakes of the older boys and pivoted to, you know, a different direction than the rest of them. Always wanted to be a soldier. That was, you know, there's pictures of me as a little boy with a you know, a camouflage uniform and a rifle, you know, you know, playing dirt bomb fights in the empty lot and all that jazz. But, uh, you know, Providence, you know, fell right into that and then 
you know, got an active duty commission. And if it wasn't for the luck of the draw in the commissioning program, I probably would have been, you know, 30 years in the, in, in the military. But when you take a history major and you make them a chemical weapons officer, that kind of stacks the deck against. So long story short, I, you know, I did the military thing. Um, I enlisted in the middle of college just to get experience, you know, in the reserves and, went off to active duty for several years. But, you know, when you're looking at your career horizon as a, as a chemical weapons officer and you got a degree in history, I didn't want to be 40 getting out, you know, and having to restart my life. So I exited and then went off into the corporate world through the, the traditional JMO headhunter program. And that, that was consumer products and logistics where a lot of ex-military folks end. Yeah. So your your background is uh, it's amazing in terms of how it set you up. I have a great deal of respect for military professionals because I think there's a discipline that is taught and learned in professionals like yourself. So I think that did you a great deal of good. You have some retail experience. We'll talk a little bit about that. But by the way, I have to make one clarification for our younger audiences. There was a depression prior to the year 2000, and that was in the 1920s. And that's what Mike was referring to. So if you're not a baby boomer, you didn't get that connection real quick. He and I did. And I also have parents that were similar to yours that came from uh, Europe and uh, landed. Yeah, there were, you know, I remember getting out of college in 1991, and that was not a good year either. You know, I had a job. You know, granted, it was wearing a uniform, but I was getting employed and other people weren't. So it seemed that every 10 years there was a cycle. I couldn't sit here and tell you that I had some genius behind it. It was just, it was poor that, you know, do something stable, go work for a big company, plug along for a while. So, yeah. One thing before we get into uh, building better businesses here with the experiences you've had as a trans world business advisor, business broker, um, how did you go from corporate to entrepreneurial? Was that something inherent inside of you because what your father did? Was that something that you just you know, had a realization oh, that? Yeah. Go ahead. I was born out of necessity. I mean, I was a corporate guy and, you know, in the military, they teach these ethical planes and the reality, I'm not going to go into the, where the situation was, but there were some ethical battles. I'm not known for being the most tactful player. My father's neighbor was a corporate guy and he used to tell me, Mike, you'll never be a, a corporate guy. You just can't fit into that, that world because there's situational ethics there from time to time. Um, my wife used to tell me, like, why can't you just shut up? There were things that I just could not shut up about. So I had reload here with a, with a corporation and, and was doing some restructure and it just didn't work out culturally. And I was out of a job. I went to Transworld, you know, going, all right, I got to figure this out, find a business to buy. Or actually my realtor had referred me in. And it was 2005 when I did that. And uh, in 2005, you could throw bubble gum against the wall and it would sell. Exchange rates were great. Orlando's, you know, a hub for that. And I was like, okay, how do I make this work? I studied the people in the office. I went to the training class in Fort Lauderdale. Back then it was, you know, over by the airport, not just down the street from where it is now, but it was in a tin building. We were still using like dot matrix printers, believe it or not. Andy really hadn't leveraged up on capital because we were bootstrapping. And um, I uh, went back to Orlando and I was like, okay, what do the customers want? What meets my economic needs? You know, I was doing the old, I used my, my, my liberal arts education, did a little Marcus Aurelius uh, and went, you know, how do I solve the problem and what's the need? And then I started selling, I think my first year I sold 18 lawn services because they had no land. What I took away from training was landlords and lawyers kill deals. So I, 
I went, okay, how can I avoid that? Right. Cause I need cash flow. Don't have income, need cash flow, got a baby, you know, another one on the way. How am I going to fix this? And all right, lawn care companies flip, service the immigration market. And I became the lawn guy. And that cascaded into other service businesses. And what was happening in the market were all the other brokers, because it was so good, they were pivoting up to bigger deals. And I ended up getting all these little deals, which is an important kind of, there was no genius in this. This was just, hey, I need a steady paycheck. And in hindsight, because 2005, 2006, the Great Recession of eight, right? Everybody else pivoted up and we're doing big deals and turning away the little guy. And the little guy kept calling me. And then my competitors were sending the little guy to me. So when the recession hit, they had no market share. And I did because I was the only one doing transactions. Literally at the time in the Orlando office, I was the last man standing and was still doing 20 deals a year because those guys don't need banks. And I was loyal in the beginning, but it was dumb luck. It wasn't some genius on my part. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because in your uh, in what I read about you, you focus on Main Street. So, first of all, let's define what you what you characterize as Main Street. So, what what revenue size are you looking at? I don't care. I generally think everybody deserves the same level of service. I think the work associated with building a business from scratch warrants that you know they shouldn't be turned away. And what you'll find with good entrepreneurs as they're scaling is they get if if they're true entrepreneurs and it's in their DNA. They won't ever stop. They may fail once or twice, but if you treat them with respect, there's like this, hey, that guy picked me up when I died. You know what I mean? Or I was struggling. So I've done as little as 25,000. I, as a matter of fact, Steve, I, I, this morning I went and looked at all the deals I've done and it was 323 through yesterday. And it used to be my average deal size was 160 ground. Now it's up to 218. That's a data point driven by the last several years. So I've always done, you know, basically fifty, sixty thousand dollar net, a hundred thousand dollar net, selling on the two multiple, and you know, and kind of creating some competition for them and servicing those because they flip. I mean, the longer you get in the business, one of the things that you know, because I'm an old man now, the analytics and the data that we've collected allow. If you crack it, crack it open, you find out there is an annuity. It's just a long annuity. And that those small businesses tend to trade a certain number of years. Again, not something I figured out early, but it, you know, at the end of every year, I would go in analytic and drill down and go, okay, why? Because you can get lost in the in the action on a day to day basis, and when you have some time at the end of the year, you go back and look at the data and go, okay, this is interesting, and then that helps you inform your plan as you evolve and manage your mix. Sure. So when you approach these uh, Main Street, uh, let's say, selling prospects, what do you advise for these selling clients of yours to be able to do or what do they need to have ready to go to make them a uh, fantastic selling prospect? So you've done 300 some odd. What is the commonality that you see? What do they definitely need to have? Uh, Clearly, it's financials in order, but what are you advising these Main Street selling clients to do when they're prepping their business for sale? You know, to me, that's easy. It's just the cash flow is king. The burden of overcoming the misinformation or the misperception of the buyer and and managing the buyer to understand. Sometimes buyers don't know what you and I were briefly talking about the surfing analogy this morning, right? So, you know, last year when COVID hit, there was a mass of like, Middle management, white collar, you know, someone making 100 to 130 grand who got whacked. They just lost their jobs. And those were middle aged people, 40, 50 years old, 
who now don't have a job, but still have college to pay for and the rest. And they've managed huge budgets at a corporate level, but never actually put their own money on the line. So, you know, what they won't say out loud as a buyer is fear. They're scared. And these small businesses that I deal with solve those problems. They really do. You know, they're they're usually home-based. They are self-cash flowing net 30. So there's not a lot of reserves required. They are not typically uh, overly complicated. So the variable of success is totally on the operator and their ability to answer the phone and service and some grassroots marketing campaigns. I think sometimes the buyers like, you know, have these grandiose versions and I always have to break them down and go, hey, you know, you're inside the safety of these four walls. What's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, I like Dave Ramsey. I'm a Dave Ramsey guy, right? He always breaks things down to rice and beans. You know, if you break it down, needs versus wants, that's my military background. I was like, if it all gets bad, I can live in a hole. Right. If the world goes to crap, I don't require much more than a, you know, a cup of coffee and a newspaper to be comfortable. And that, you know, and then Ramsey breaks it down to eliminate debt. And then what's your nut? You know, what's what's your beans and rice number? And when business buyers buy these smaller businesses, what they'll find is the margins tend to be higher because they're not layered with corporate fluff, you know, massive marketing budgets or you know, expensive retail space, which, you know, as, as the internet has come along, it's eliminated that traditional fixed overhead cost that, you know, the buyers have had to live with. And then there's the gap of complexity of understanding the business. And believe it or not, because we're looking at these main street levels, it's an ego check. You know, there's a perception, oh, I'm going to go own a lawn company. What are my neighbors going to think? Like the arrogance that you think your neighbors care is the first thing we have to crack through. And the second thing is like, why do you give a damn? Because what should matter is, are you paying the bills and are you making money? And if you're making money, you know, I'll never forget. I, I used to tell, because one of the things I did was I owned a business. I owned a lawn service with a partner and we scaled the crap out of it. Got up like 4 million bucks before we got rid of it. And my dad came down to visit and he was blind and he was sitting there in a meeting with me and my partners and our accountant and my dad was hearing the numbers we were throwing around and he walked out to the car with me. I was taking him to lunch. And he's like, you know, did I hear those numbers correctly? I'm like, yeah. And he just shook his head. And he's like, I never should have bothered sending you to college. And I'm like, well, dad, you know, when you were out passing gas, you know, 18 hours a day at the hospital, you know, who was sitting at the country club bar? Cause I was a caddy. It were the two plumbers. They were playing golf all the time. You were you know, working because it was you. They had built a business doing stuff that nobody else wanted to do. And, you know, they were the country club jet set at the Jersey Shore. So, you know, that always stuck with me on there. Larry, Larry Perot and Stu Poston, you know, those two guys, you know, the big plumbers in town and they never worked. <laughs> and, and so that's because of my gravitation. And when you look at those service businesses and those Main Street businesses, sometimes that corporate skill can move the needle dramatically and improve some more. And I found that when I took over the lawn care companies was I was able to kind of move the needle and, you know, take the lessons learned from the corporate, not sophisticate up for lack of a better verb, but, you know, level those businesses up by applying some different strategies, you know, away from the operator level to make the business scale and hold the margins. So. Yeah, no, that's a very, very good point. And uh, I, I think what you're saying, Mike, is that you have a lot of lessons learned that once you package them together in the right way, they'll fit into a, a Main Street business to get it to the next level. And then you find your niche, you find your expertise, you just enhance that and just go forward. I think I think that's basically it, isn't it? Yeah. And also, you don't get evangelical about it. Like, 
you know, when we had the lawn company, the lessons learned of scaling that thing was, I remember going, hey, we'll take X, do this, and we flipped it, we're done. And then when I got to this number, you know, I went from 300,000 to 600,000 in revenue. The solution I thought was the solve is not the solve at 600. When I got to 2 million, that wasn't the solve. So we then went to, okay, throw what we thought was the solution out and recraft it. And there was a, a, a willingness to adapt, B, a recognition that as we scaled, things changed. And um, sometimes that's change driven by growth. Sometimes it's change driven by outside forces like Obamacare was a dramatic change for my business. A dramatic, I mean, almost catastrophic in terms of the margin shift and what it layered into cost because it's a labor business. So it put about 10% of cost into my business model that I wasn't, you know, the solution wasn't factoring. So you just prepare to be flexible and deal with it. And I can, and I can tell you like when COVID happened for, for me this, this last year or two years ago, when it's now two years um, and Andy too, we took the lessons from 2008 and ran our business far more conservatively and began to manage mix and retain cash flow and reserves and formulate other revenue streams so that when a catastrophe hits, we took the shot. That's the old military planning stuff too. It's, you know, I'm overly cautious from time to time. And, you know, it's just this, if it's going to happen, Murphy will happen at some point and you just need to be prepared for it. Because when it happens, if you're stable and you have a good balance sheet, the other guy's going to collapse and then revenue shifts. That was one of the dynamics that happened in 2008 because we had owned the lawn service and uh, everybody else was collapsing because they were growing through debt. They were acquiring equipment with, with, with interest charges, right? So when you're servicing residential housing and the residential housing market crashes and people can't pay for their lawns and you've got a debt for all your mowers and trucks, and mow- <laughs> you know, boom, the business shifts, you know what I'm saying? And uh, it had a, a requisite, you know, we reaped the benefit, just the volume. It was like a pizza pie. It just shifted over to us because we were the only guys standing around without any debt on our business. So, Mike, if I could summarize real quickly, I think you've got to be uh, flexible. You need to adapt. You need to take steps back every so often to kind of get an understanding of where you are, where the market is, what the competition is like, what the external influences are. So it's always an evolving process. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, constantly. And then the other thing is have a tribe or people you can talk to. Entrepreneurs, you know, tend to be very insular and quiet. And they don't have people to talk to that they trust. You know, I'm a, I'm a plumber, right? I don't value the guy in the suit. He doesn't add any value, right? And he's going to charge me $150 an hour, you know, to talk to him. You got to find your tribe of people and resist the temptation to have them in your business. Like four plumbers don't want to be solving the world's problems. You want a plumber. You want, you want a variety of people in different sectors because that scope of experience allows people to which is not the way professionals are trained, you know, for the last 30 years, the last 30 years, you, you go to business school, you're very insular in your training. You know, I got a history degree. I dropped out of accounting classes twice because it just didn't interest me. And, you know, I can read and I can write and I have a kind of a, a different way of looking at things. And I, I really think my history degree helps me. You know, I'm alone in that perception, but I, 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 I'm a fan of the liberal arts as opposed to kind of, hey, you go get a college degree and, you know, accounting. Okay. Yeah, if you're going to be a CPA, great, but that's not exactly going to help you when you're trying to sell. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think uh, being a well-rounded person and depending on others or relying on others or counseling with others as needed is very, very important. Hey, Mike, unfortunately, we're at the uh, the end of our time allotment. We talked a lot about a lot of different things. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want an audience to know about right now? I think, um, you know, something struck me a couple of days ago is like, be comfortable being uncomfortable because that's going to keep you on your toes. And I think all too often businesses, you know, I had my partner in the lawn service said to me, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. I'm like, okay, you got that off a poster somewhere. But the healthy discomfort associated with business can be a good thing. It can really be a good thing because it keeps you honest. It keeps you checking yourself. That tribe, having the tribe around you allows you to challenge your thought and get different ideas. That's one of the things about Transworld is we do a really good job of sharing experience and, you know, I've been doing it 16 years. You've been doing it, what, three or four? You know, oh, five or six. I'm a veteran. <laughs> but, you know, your market's different culturally than my Definitely. market. And then the, the industries within my market are different. You've probably touched more manufacturing businesses than I have. It's just because you're in a manufacturing area. So there's going to be a different dynamic to what you do. And it's going to have a different deal stream. And, you know, again, that whole, there is no cookie cutter approach. You could take pieces of, of gold from everybody and apply it to your model. Yeah, to your point, Mike, um, we here in the upper Midwest, we have a group of 12 or 15 offices that kind of get together from time to time and talk about best practices. We compare and contrast to what you do in Florida. But to your point, I mean, you take what works best. You have to reject some things that are not applicable to your market, and then you run with it. Okay. Um, last right. but not least, Mike, where do we go to find out about you? We know we can find you at tworld.com, but there's other places to find more about you. How do we uh, do that? You can find me at yourfloridabusinessbroker.com. I created another website. I really haven't figured out what I'm doing with it yet. It's called Mike Shea Sells. Again, that's an example of me testing and trying to leverage into, into the Tampa market. Um, that'll be an evolving platform. Uh, all the social media stuff, I'm everywhere. And then you just want to call me. It's 321-287-0349. Thank you so much, Mike. We appreciate your insights. And uh, definitely would check out what Mike is talking about because he's got a lot of uh, great tips for us to learn to not only enhance your business, get it ready for selling, or if you're looking to acquire businesses, what you need to know about buying a business. Thanks so much, Mike. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks, Steve. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.